Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Canadian conductor who first came to prominence in 1984 when he founded his own orchestra, and he's since gone on to have a highly successful career both symphonically and in the Opera House. Since 2018, he has been principal conductor of the Orchestra of St. Luke's in New York. It is a great pleasure to welcome Bernard Labadie. Bernard, it's lovely to meet you for the first time and to chat with you. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you very much. Good, and where are you? I know there's a time difference between us. Where are you at the moment? I'm at home in Quebec City, uh, Canada. And uh, yeah, so it's 10 or 5 in the morning. Uh, I got just enough caffeine going on in my body to be uh, to be efficient. <laughs> it's often the way with this podcast. You know, I speak to people who live in North America that it's sort of mid to late afternoon here. It's it's yeah. breakfast time for you. And occasionally I've done it the other way around where you know uh, it's been morning here and they've been in Australia with a glass of wine in their hand. And I've been very Nightcap, jealous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nightcap <indeed>. talks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Quebec's going to come up a lot, at least at the beginning of your life. I always go straight back to the beginning. And I know that you're from Quebec. It is your hometown. Um, musical parents, musical family at all. And what were your first instruments? Because I've looked on the internet and I can't find any mention of instruments at all. Yeah, well, because <laughs> some people might might say it's not really an instrument. Uh, I was a, uh, I would say I was an, an ordinary recorder player. Yeah. Uh, turned really bad singer who eventually understood uh, that uh, he was better uh, making other people sing and play than actually doing it himself. Uh, I do not come from a musical family at all, actually. Mm. Um, my dad would put on LPs of what we would call light classical music, like Rossini overtures, waltzes, and things like that, uh, occasionally on Sunday afternoons. He would also occasionally listen to uh, a Met broadcast uh, on Saturday afternoon if it was Carmen or Traviata or an mm. opera that he, that he knew. But that was about it. Um, there was no piano in the house, which uh, to this day I regret because I wish I had, had at least learned some, some keyboard to, to have come in handy in my yeah. future life. But uh, that didn't happen. And uh, no, the, 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 uh, the seminal figure in my in my epiphany, in my musical epiphany, was a uh, third grade uh, music teacher who noticed that I had a good ear and that uh, maybe I should do something with it. Mm. And and you, it, it sounds like conducting was something that you wanted to do from a very early age. I mean, as you can imagine, um, over 120 episodes into this podcast, I've spoken to you know, 120 different conductors, and, and sometimes it comes in very late indeed. I mean, their 30s and 40s, and others... Like you, I mean, you know, the story everybody knows about Andres Nelson's was he wanted to become a conductor at the age of five when he heard um, Tannhäuser for the first time. So was it something that really came to you early in life? Uh, it's it's hard to say. Uh, I definitely didn't think of myself as a conductor before I accidentally had to do it. Right. Uh, yeah. This being said, uh, I had always been a... Uh, Kind of a leader in of some sort in uh, different uh, musical groups uh, had a big mouth uh, <laughs> it, it was clear that that I, I wanted to be in charge of things I think that was part of my nature yeah. uh, so in that I could say that the uh, conductor you know initial 
flash of life was probably there from the very beginning. But the actual decision to become a conductor came when I was uh, 19. Yeah. Uh, after I got to conduct a group of friends, uh, colleagues at uh, Laval University in Quebec City. Um, I was, we were, long story short, we were supposed to do kind of a joint uh, um, adventure of doing uh, uh, Persil's Dido and Aeneas mm. with a colleague who was from the conservatory and he eventually pulled out and I ended up having to do it, the whole thing myself. And I so I conducted my first concert, which was a concert version of Dido and Aeneas when I was 19. And after I did that, I never turned back. Yeah. Uh, after I did that, I knew this is what I wanted to do. But I would say so that that transformation from 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 really mediocre singer uh, to to <laughs> become a conductor happened about when I was eighteen, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we spend our lives uh, answering emails or phone calls from our agents about jump ins, and it sounds like you know it all started for you with a jump in. Um, I mean. Was the, the the fellow student who pulled out, I mean, I'm assuming he was studying conducting, and uh, were you watching him and thinking, well, uh, taking things in, or, you know, had you got no. some ability already, or you just stood up there and went, oh, well, I'll, I'll have to no, do it, yeah. so I'll have to do that, it. Yeah. That colleague of mine was actually a harpsichordist, and, oh, and right. it had not been clear whether I would be, who would be actually moving his hands in front of the group. <laughs> so uh, it was kind of, of designed in advance, I, I assume, for me to uh, end up doing it. But the uh, what was great is that in, at Laval University, there was no conducting class. There was no, there was no way really to, uh, to get a proper training in that. But there was um, a lot of freedom to come up with projects that would be supported by the community and by the university. Mm. And that's how I got to uh, meet one of my very best friends, uh, Antoine Bouchard, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, or eminent organist, uh, who, uh, because we needed a teacher to kind of you know, oversee what we were doing. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I knocked at his door for the first time, and I remember the first time I, I came into his office, uh, I came out like three hours later because we talked about music nonstop. So there was Laval University was a great place uh, for me to explore and try things. And actually, after that first experience with Dido, the year after, uh, I was offered uh, to conduct uh, Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Popea with the uh, opera studio there. Uh, so I was I was twenty one conducting colleagues of my age or older. Which was a bit odd, and uh, and I'll never forget what I was offered. This was, I was so excited. I said, "Yes, of course, I'll do it," and I had no idea what what the opera was about. And I rushed <laughs> to the library, opened the score, and saw that it was basically the, the three hours of of recits and arioso like music for singers and continuo. <laughs> I said, "Oh my God, what have I done?" <laughs> well, but, and, but, and, yeah. and any conducting student would be laughing now, as well. I'm laughing, and you are laughing. But for those who don't conduct, and I know there are quite a lot of people who who listen to this podcast who don't actually conduct, recits or recitatives are notoriously difficult to conduct, and they're on most of the the big high hitting competitions, aren't they? Some sort of Mozart aria with a recitative. I mean, usually the the, the quintessential piece on any audition piece uh, for a uh, 
for a conductor who has to be involved in the opera would be the speaker scene in Magic Flute, mm. which was which is Mozart's longest accompanied recitative and which is notoriously difficult yeah. to uh, to conduct. Yep. There, I mean, there. Uh, I've sort of mentioned it occasionally in the past that Zachary Oromo, who was my first big name teacher, I suppose, talked to me about muscle memory for, for contemporary music when you're doing things of, you know, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, you know, conducting along in your study and working out muscle memory. Recits are very similar, but you're you're dealing with the animal that is the singer. And exactly. To, yeah, that's you're not, the difficult thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you have to, it, it, it takes two to tango. <laughs> it and, does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you are in charge of, of the orchestra in front of you, but you have to react to the singer. And in an ideal world, the singer always does it uh, in the exact way you expect him or her to do, but it rarely happens on no. the opera stage. So it it uh, it's, it's something that I love about opera. It's the unpredictability of it, and the fact <laughs> that you have you have to be ready to uh, to react at any time. And I I certainly had a few moments in my opera career career which is basically over now i do very little opera but i did a lot in my early years and uh you mm. learn a lot by in that trial by fire mm. <laughs> being at pit and having to uh to react to what's happening i mean the the first official opera job that i had was uh it was quite something quite a privilege i was offered when i was 31 i was offered the job of of not only music but artistic director of quebec city opera mm. uh, my hometown uh, for all sorts of reasons that were not all musical anyways they gave the job to me who didn't know much about conducting opera certainly not much about the real business of opera dealing with a the professional theater and, and all of that and i literally had to learn on the spot and the second production I had to conduct was um, Na uh, Verdi's Nabucco that had been planned by my previous, uh, by, by my uh, the person who had founded the opera, the, mm. the one I was succeeded. And um, we had this uh, stalwart of, of the Metropolitan Opera, um, Theodore Lambrinos. He passed away, unfortunately, last year or two years ago. And, and Ted had covered... The role of Nabucco a zillion times for the Metropolitan Opera. He knew the piece in and out. So he was, I mean, when we were rehearsing, I could always count on him. He knew the piece. I, I could always focus on the others. And um, in the opening night, there are two very similar passages at the end of, if I'm right, Act Two and Act Four. It's been, been, been a while, or Act Two and Three, whatever, uh, that are very, very similar, like. Big and fermata chorus and soloist, people applaud, and then the Nabucco starts a recit by himself, and mm. then the orchestra comes in. And um, the second time it happened, he went back to the first recit. So <gasps> he started, he started the wrong music, of course, yeah. uh, in a different key. And all I could was to bring in the orchestra with what I had in front of me on the page. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then he realized that he was he was at the wrong place, and he completely froze. And. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing coming out of his mouth and all i had was you know like six or seven bars of rest <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and then the <laughs> yeah. so exactly yeah. so uh, there's a little voice that just was heard in 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 the hall 
something like Babylonese jet It was me singing Nabucco <laughs> in the pit. So I mean, for a guy who had been doing mostly Baroque music, because that was my first love, and it's it still is to a large extent, uh, that was quite a that was quite a shock. So it's it's trial by fire, and then you learn that anything can happen in, in an opera pit and uh these are actually extremely valuable experiences because you yeah. know when once you survive things like that, you can survive a lot of things. Well, I'm I'm going to move uh, away from the opera pit briefly and tell two little stories of my own, which it, it's in the the netherworld of for us conductors because of course we never speak in performances, we just just don't. And you, you had to sing that line from Nabucco to try and wrestle wrestle the production back that evening. I had two instances. One was in a at a conservatoire. Well, I was actually conducting the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra at the time, but it was conservatoire students playing concertos. And we were doing the Nielsen Clarinet Concerto. And the, I think the soloist was so amazed he was stood on the stage with the BBC Scottish and me conducting. He completely forgot to come in in one of his entrances in the Nielsen Clarinet Concerto. So I just gently started whistling it next to him to remind him of what the clarinet part was like. And he came flying in. But the other one, um, so whistling is sort of a, okay, okay. But then the other one, was the Shostakovich first cello concerto with a dear friend of mine. There's a passage in the finale, which is a waltz, which goes bum, 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 bim, bim, bum, 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 bum. And the orchestra comes in every five bars, and then the clarinets go across the top. Well, it's a five-bar phrase for the solo cello, then a six-bar, then a seven-bar, and then an eight-bar, or something like this. He played the five-bar phrase, and then he went straight to the eight-bar phrase. Mm, these things happen. Yeah, and as he got to the top, or halfway through it, he realised he was in the wrong place and done the wrong thing, and so he just rested on the on a top note and went dee, 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 over and over again and looked at me as if to say, "What are you going to do?" And one of the clarinets came in, da, 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 da. <laughs> and I realised there was no way out of this. So I just I saw there was a tutti coming up where he didn't play, and so I just had to shout. I don't know what the rehearsal on the board was, but I had to shout in the concert. Figure forty eight, and it. Bang, and then we jump there, <laughs> and of course I spoke, and that's the cardinal sin, you know. You you don't you know shout out and and I, I asked Sakari Oromo, who was who was teaching me at the time what I should have done, and he listened to my tell the story I've just told you, and he said, Mike, I can't see any other way of getting out of that. No, I think, there's no. Other I think way. you had to speak, yeah. but yeah, there's it, it no makes your way. blood run cold, doesn't it? It just I mean, makes yeah, yeah. Once in Tosca, uh, with the same company a few years later. Uh, I remember that that was the last performance. And of course, in act one, just before the Angelus, you have bells mm. and, 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 and then the, uh, the, the sacristan just sings a little prayer. And for the fourth performance, the uh, percussion player from the orchestra was sick and he was replaced by a student with very little experience. And as we were getting nearer that, that part of the music, I was you know, looking at the percussion section. Is is he is the guy aware that it's coming? Is yeah. somebody helping him? And nobody was moving. He wasn't moving. We were like a few bars away. He was not, you know, ready to <laughs> it. And and when we got there, I just went dong, <laughs> dong, <laughs> dong, followed by a big, big swear. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can well imagine. Uh, yeah, oh, brilliant! Exactly. So moments like that. That's uh, I think every conductor who's done some opera in his or her life uh, has stories of that nature.
1984, you founded, I never know whether that's the right word, founded, started, formed a group which you all were, of that, all, of, all of all of those words called Le Violon du Bois, um, which is a, a historically informed performance group, really, isn't it? I mean, um, was that something that you'd studied a lot about, or how did you end up forming a group like that, fresh out of university? I mean, you graduated in 1983 and you founded that group in 1984. How did it come about? Uh, actually, I founded two groups uh, officially one year of after course, the other. There's also the choir as well. The, yeah. the choir, La Chapelle de Québec. But the irony is that in actuality, uh, the orchestra was founded to accompany the choir. Right. The choir existed beforehand, and it was that group of singers that I was conducting at the university, with, mm. with which I had done Persos, Dido, and Aeneas. And the year after, we did Handel's L'Allegro, Il Penseroso, Ed Il Moderato. And I, unfortunately, the, the level of string playing or the sheer number of string players at the university was, 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 there was no critical mass to form an orchestra, yeah, uh, yeah. although we had lots of great singers. So basically, I founded an orchestra in order to accompany that choir at the university. And after I graduated, I had to take the choir out of the university structure. And that's when I had to officially found the choir. That's why when you look at number, it look at, at, at years, it looks like the orchestra was founded before the choir. Mm. But in actuality, it's the other way around. And it's very important. It's a very important thing because my absolute first love in life is um, 18th and early 19th century repertoire for choir and orchestra. Mm. This is what triggered my 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 love for music I, I i know exactly when i decided i wanted to be a musician it was uh in december 1974 so i was 11 and i went to a concert uh presented by quebec symphony orchestra a christmas concert and the concert opened with the first cantata from bach christmas oratorio Mm. And that opening with the solo timpani and then the woodwinds responding and then the cascades of of, of, uh, of scales going down uh, and the joyful noise that it all produced, it just, it swept me away. It just, uh, it, I was literally struck by lightning. And it's the only thing I could talk about in, in the days after that concert. And of course, I, 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 met regularly with my uh, elementary music uh, teacher back then. And, and uh, that's when really after that concert, I started, I wanted to hear everything by Bach and especially mm -hmm. choral music. And uh, the year, a year later, that teacher suggested, oh, you should try the B minor mass. I mean, you know, saying that to a 12 year old kid. kid. <laughs> so, and I was a paper boy. So I used my paper boy's money to buy and uh, a pocket score, the famous, Erlenburg scores that conductors all know that with the yellow cover, the cheapest <laughs> uh, scores that. Yeah. And I they're asked, right behind me, as you can see. There's a whole exa row of them. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> and and uh, I asked my mom for Christmas. I wanted a recording of the uh, of the uh, the B minor mass, and uh, it 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 was a, a awkward and and in retrospect funny moment when she brought me to a uh, classical music store, you know, record store. Uh, because it was LPs back then. Mm. And uh, we were greeted by the classical music specialist, uh, uh, an older, 
old gentleman. Yes. Uh, who was, you know, full of his knowledge and everything. And then my mom said to him, well, my son here wants to buy. What, what is it that you want to buy? I said, I want Mass in B minor. And he went straight to the cheapest version available, probably saying, well, for a 12-year-old kid, that's going to be enough. And right. it was, I think it was a reprint of a version with Cayenne and the Berlin film. Mm. And and I said, no, I want the version with Nikolaus Anoku on period instruments. My yeah. mom was looking at me like ice balls. <laughs> I bet. And, and, who, and, and, who is I, this I, child? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I, I never forgot the guy's answer because uh, if you remember, uh, in back in the time of LPs, Mass in B minor was always a three LP set. And when Hanoku made his first recording, of course, his tempi were overall yeah. quicker than everything that had been heard before. So it was a three LP set, but the 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 second the the flip side of the third LP was blank. Mm. And the guy told my mom, ma'am, you're about to buy three LPs, but there's only two LPs and a half of music on that. You, got to, you know, it's not a good deal. <laughs> and uh, I, well, <laughs> I, I, I did. Yeah, I did get the Hanoko version and yeah. the rest is, is history. The thing is that that little score, which is one of the first ones I bought, uh, that pocket score, um, every time I do the B minor mass, I take it out of my library and I put it on my music stand. I don't use it anymore, of course. I'm using a, a much more uh, reliable edition, mm. but I keep it there almost as a talisman, as something that just reminds me of, of my, it, it connects me with uh, my whole journey as a, as a musician, because this was really a, a, and it's when I open it, first of all, it's been read so often, it's been often opened so often, probably my whole, uh, mother's recipe book you have spots and stains of everything she cooked yeah in yeah, in, yeah. In, in that uh and in, in that and 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 you can see my my kids handwriting you know bernard labadie 1975 um and it's i'm i'm sort of uh moved a little bit every time i open it because it just brings me to these early years when I was completely, when I fell in love with that music, I was completely, totally absorbed. I mean, there's, I there's, was, they are took, such it personal It took over things. my whole life. Yeah, it they are such personal things, scores. I mean, they, they, they really are. I mean, I don't think I could throw any of them out that I've ever used, you know, that I can replace them with others, but the originals won't yeah, be thrown away. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's good to look back at them. Um, sticking with uh, HIP and with, you know, your love of, of that, genre of music there are three names that appear on your wikipedia page as being sort of mentors or teachers or people that you went and sought advice from simon streetfield pierre de vaux and the very famous jean elliott gardner um what did you take from them i mean obviously john elliott gardner's in the hop field as well and and has done a lot of hasn't he recorded all of the bark cantatas mm. um you know and then some and then <laughs> some and then everything else as well how did they help you form your, you know, uh, opinions and things? Well, what were they like, those three people? Well, first of all, I didn't write that Wikipedia page. No, no, none why, of us ever do, yeah. Why did that person pick these three names? I'm sure uh, there are many more. Especially, yeah. there are many more. And, and I mean, in the case of John Elliott, uh, I studied with him for five days. So I think it's, it's uh, to... to you know, put his name there as one of my teachers is, is a bit overblown. Uh, but he was a very important uh, figure in my life. But before him, 
Simon Stratfield, um, very esteemed violist, uh, 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 working with Neville Mariner in the mm. early years of the uh, Academy of St. Martin of the Fields. Um, Simon moved to Canada, became uh, became a conductor, moved to Canada, and conducted every Canadian orchestra I mean, for years. And he ended up um, music director of the Quebec Symphony in, mm. in my hometown. And exactly when I was doing those early projects, like the the, the Purcell Monteverdi, that's when he, he was appointed. And I went to him because I want I needed a teacher, a mentor or something. And uh, And Simon was this immensely generous uh humble in the best sense of of, of the word uh, uh musician and, mm. and person and i i couldn't say that he really taught me because we uh didn't really have classes or anything we sometimes we would talk about about scores and things like that but but he um he opened doors for me like he helped uh get me a scholarship which allowed me to follow the Quebec Symphony for a year mm. as an apprentice conductor that's probably the lowest uh <laughs> title one can yeah. get but still it allowed me to conduct a Haydn symphony at the end of the of the season but i learned a lot just watching him and 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 basically following an orchestra for a year having an idea what what the life of a symphony orchestra um is and and later on uh simon hired me as is a choir conductor for the orchestra so these were very important uh moves pierre dervaux is, uh, is also linked actually to the history of the quebec symphony uh but way before my days um he was actually one of the great french conductors of the 20th century um very very strong personality he was music director in quebec city for two years and some older musicians who played under him still have a long list of jokes and quotes by Pierre <laughs> because he was he was quite the talker uh he was a specialist uh in french music and he was also uh his technique was absolutely stellar and extremely simple and clear mm. because he was the official fireman for all concerts in france if, if a conductor right. fell ill uh and there was no rehearsal left or only the dress uh, one would call pierre delvaux because he could always save the day mm. uh conducting everything from memory and and uh and when i got to work with him actually he was teaching in a summer music academy uh, near Quebec City called the Domaine Forget. And I studied with him two summers in a row. And this is where really I, this is when I really understood what conducting an orchestra is all about, technically speaking, uh, because his teaching was so simple, because he was this fireman of a conductor. Yeah, yeah, his, yeah. his technique had to be absolutely uh, um, idiot-proof. What yes. I mean is that it had you had to be clear, like with one gesture, only one thing could happen, mm. uh, because he didn't. He was under so many circumstances when he couldn't even explain a single thing because it, there was no. He would just jump in the pit and conduct the thing. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, technically, I basically I, I would, I I think I did learn all the basics of my technique uh, with him uh, because he was he was so helpful in that. And as for John Elliott, as I as I told you, I worked only uh, with him for a week in a, in a summer academy. And that was in Stuttgart in 91, the Bach Academy, run by Helmut Rilling. 
and uh, John Elliott was there with with his orchestra, and he, so we had daily sessions with his orchestra, a certain number of conductors, and he also conducted concerts before and after the festival. So, and he had been my hero for mm. years. Mm. So for me to finally get to work with him was uh, was a, uh, a very important moment, and he helped me uh, in in ways that were completely uh, that was almost incredible incomprehensible for me at the beginning yeah. because John Elliott as a teacher has the keenest eye that I've ever seen um, from a conductor he he can look at a conductor you know for like 30 seconds and he knows exactly uh, what piece from the rep that, that is available to assign to uh, that conductor in order to you know clean up problems or solve uh, anyways and with me what happened is that he um he understood very early on that my greatest anguish in life was uh not to be prepared enough mm. uh and i had prepared like so deeply for the, the whole program of that but there was one piece actually a few pieces from one work which i could not prepare because i ne never got the copy on the program there were there were excerpts from uh that uh, very little known uh opera a comic by gluck called les pèlerins de la mecque which is basically the same story as uh, mozart's uh, abduction right and uh, that's why the two pieces were on the same program because they yeah. were you wanted to, you know, underline connections with you of them. And uh, the uh, it, there was only one edition. It was Bayonetta. It was out of print. So back then, he, they had secured. There was no IMSLP, you know. Back no, then. no, no. Go to, you know. <laughs> so he, they, the festival had secured uh, authorized photocopies of the score from Bayonetta, but they shipped it to the wrong address. So I never got it. Oh. But when I got there, uh, I went to him directly and i said uh you have to know that i never got this music and i'm, I'm uh, what should i do and said oh don't worry don't worry i want i want people to conduct music that they have you know fully prepared so i'll just give that to other people don't worry thank god i did manage to get a copy of that nevertheless and and, and studied it because uh he uh after the first day uh, when he asked me to conduct the first quintet from Magic Flute, and it went well. I was so happy. I was on cloud nine because, hey, I was <laughs> working with my hero and everything was fine. And from the second day on, he made me basically sight read in front of the orchestra, <laughs> including including a very um, tricky sextet from that piece, which is very short, but it's super quick. And then, yeah, six different singers who were all students of very, very different levels. Yeah. And most of them couldn't speak French and the piece is in French. So it was a complete mess and he, he, he chose to give it to me and he, know, he knew I didn't know the piece. And when he did that, I, I just told him, Mr. Gardner, you know, I don't know the pieces. Oh, you will like it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so the whole week was like that uh at the end on the final day he threw me with just a few hours of preparation in the great uh quintet at the end of um of uh, great quartet i'm sorry at the end of act two of abduction uh which i had to come to conduct and half of it i hadn't rehearsed so for me it was like hell yeah. And I hated him because I had, you know, prepared so well and he was making me do stuff that I hadn't prepared. 
but that proved to be so helpful mm. in the future because in the conductor's life even if you want to be always super well prepared it's not always the case sometimes no. you have to jump in at the last minute you have to learn a lot of music at the last minute or for any reason i mean you you do not always show up as prepared as you would like to and uh he basically gave me uh i wouldn't say a shield of invincibility but uh definitely i would say a uh, a, a, a true inner confidence that when placed in a situation like that, I could I could manage yeah. and I could survive. Yeah. And actually, the year after, uh, because we corresponded for 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 a while in the years after, and and one year later, I had to conduct a concert in Belgium with a chamber orchestra. I showed up there, and I looked at the music on the 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 musician stand, and it was not the symphony that was on my contract. So I showed my contract to the, to the guy. I said, you know, there's not, oh, you're right. Oh, it's a mistake. Uh, we can't do that one because we did it last week. So instead of panicking, I just said, okay, can we start with the concerto? And yeah. I had 60 minutes for lunch. I just had my sandwich, turning pages, looking at the piece. And then we were fine in the afternoon. And I, I wrote him a little thank you note saying, you know, you, you have instilled me with something that, uh, cannot be learned in books or anything. Uh, it's it's a so, big lesson we need to learn, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm, just, yeah, I'm just sitting here. To my right is a desk, which is all of the programmes laid out for the next six months. And there are some programmes on there that are all music I've done before or their scores I started marking up six, nine months ago. But there's a gap. And the gap is I, I go to Tron time tomorrow and do a concert, which is all ready to go. I come home, I have two weeks off, and then I go to Cologne for two weeks' work with the WDR Funkhouse Orchestra. I've got one of the nine scores here because I happen to have conducted it before. The other, the others haven't arrived yet. You know, see, the whole point about our life as a, a conductor is you could be looking at scores that are old friends of yours in 12 months' time or have 12 months to mark something up. Or you could, as you've just explained, do a symphony over lunch or, you know, the, the scores just don't arrive to you because it's new music and it hasn't been finished yet until a week before the concert. And we have to try and build this all into our psyche and our way of coping, don't we? That's the whole point of it. Yeah, absolutely. Although I have to say that by choice... Uh, I have over the years narrowed my repertoire a lot. Hmm. And now I really focus on 18th century and early 19th century. So I'm 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 not uh, anymore in the position of receiving a score uh, on which the, the ink is not dry yeah. yet. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it never happens to me. I don't do that stuff anymore. That's my choice. Uh, but I had to, in my early years, to go through those trials and hmm. they are... I think they are an integral part of, of a conductor's um, education, definitely. You said earlier that you, at the beginning of your career, obviously with, um, I, I can't resist telling you this because you probably know anyway, but in, in the UK, your band is called Roy's Violins. Um, of course, not, I know. Yeah, of course, for, I'm sure you know. It's been called that, Roy's but, Violins for years. Yeah. I know um, but, and and I'm, look, seriously, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, in Penn State University, our very, very first concert ever in the United States, I believe it was in 1997, something like that, when we just started touring. 
we do that concert, and after the concert, there's a guy who just arrives, rushes into the 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 the, the, the it was in the church, so the sacristy or something, and he was there. Just, wow, wonderful, fabulous concert. Where is Roy? <laughs> and, and it was not a joke. He was no, serious. No. He really, he really thought it was Roy's violins, and yeah. that was Roy. <laughs> Brilliant! Oh, I love that. No, um, where was I? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, you started with your with your group, uh, but also you said earlier on uh, the ve- the uh, I suppose the first half, maybe longer of your career, was based a lot in opera. I mean, you were also doing the uh, choral director of the Orchestra Symphonic de Quebec, but then, as you said, artistic director of Opera de Quebec, and also later Opera de Montreal. But you just said, or you said earlier on, that opera is now something that you do less and less and less of. Is that a conscious decision? Much as you know, you de- you decided to you know concentrate solely on the stuff that you're most famous for, or is it just happened that you've done less and less opera? How's it come about no, to be that? It way? was a very conscious decision, as you said. After Quebec Opera, I was appointed to Montreal Opera. I was there for only four years because it was not a happy tenure. I will not get into details here, but for all sorts of reasons, many, I mean, most of them being non-musical. Uh, it was not a happy time in my life. And uh, it's what and... this podcast is about is being open and honest. Jack Van Steen yeah. said he hated being the, the gay day at Weimar because, of, you know, <laughs> the bureaucracy, not nothing to do with music making, but but it's good to hear that not every, you know, occasionally no. not everything is a rosy, rosy no, road. No, no, yeah. no, absolutely, absolutely not. Mm. And uh, after, and actually I had, signed a uh, first three-year contract, which was successful, although there were many, many issues, uh, things that needed to be fixed. And I I, I accepted to sign a, a, a second contract, which was a five-year contract. And after one year, I begged them to free me from that contract. And mm. uh, I, I, I didn't have to beg, actually, because they didn't have enough money to pay me. So <laughs> uh, so that was part of the many. Money was was yeah. one of the many, many problems there. So and after that, I uh, that led to a, um, um, a moment of reckoning, a moment when I had to just look at myself in the mirror and say, OK, what makes you happy? What do you do really well? Uh, and I figured because I had, I was doing opera in Montreal like four months a year, but I still had Le Violon de Roy. I was still music director with a, uh, like a 12, 13 week season, including touring, and already had a busy calendar as a guest. So I was running mm. after my tail, literally. I was, yeah. I was jumping from one plane to the other and doing the story thing that the, the jet set things that people think is should be a conductor's life. And uh, I realized that, first of all, I wasn't happy. And second, I had to be honest with myself, is that I was not great at everything I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I I was, I believe, a competent opera director in later repertoire and romantic repertoire. Because I did all of the Puccini, the Verdi, the, all of that stuff I had to do for, for that. And I love the music. It's not about the music. But I just realized that I, I didn't think I had a voice that was worth, uh, I didn't say it wasn't worth to be heard, but it's my voice in that music was not at the level of, of what I could achieve in mm-hmm. my repertoire of choice. Yeah. And yeah. I, I didn't feel comfortable 
um, having kind of a dual life. What I mean by that is that in, in the field of Baroque music and early romantic music, with Le Violon and my work as a guest, I had I was at a you know a certain level professionally mm. speaking, and I felt that artistically what I was doing in the upper world was at a lower level, uh, and that was related to me. It was not necessarily my career or opportunities or anything. It was related to what I could do. I was not a great Massenet conductor. I was not a great Puccini. I was a competent Puccini conductor, but I was not a great one, mm. and I I didn't see the point of. Uh, keeping uh, in the limelight uh, another merely competent conductor in the field of opera. Um, there are so many charlatans everywhere uh, <laughs> doing our work. And I felt that eventually I might become one of them mm. in that repertoire. And, and, and I had colleagues, I have, you know, colleagues from Quebec who I know are a million times better than I am. Uh, doing that stuff and um it was better for me to just focus on what i could really do because i i, I mean and you know that michael uh, there are no conductors who are absolutely excellent at everything they do absolutely uh, yeah if, absolutely. If, if, if i mean talking about symphony orchestra conductors who do everything from you know from purcell to the thing that was composed uh, the day before uh, it's impossible. It just doesn't exist. And um, some of 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 some of us are much more uh, flexible and have a much wider array of things that they are uh, they excel in. Um, some others, like myself, I think, can really achieve something, but in a, in a smaller field. Mm. And uh, for me, what matters is not how wild the field is. It's about how well it is cultivated. Absolutely, that's a and, brilliant and, phrase. Yeah, yeah, and 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 for me, it's it's, I I just can't look at myself in the mirror if I don't consider that I really have something personal to say about a score. And it it's it's not a reflection on the value of the music uh, itself. There's nothing I find more exciting than being seated in a great concert hall and listening to a great symphony orchestra performing the Rite of Spring. Mm. Uh, this is a uh, uh, seismic experience, mm. uh, which I absolutely love, but I don't have something to say as a performer about that score. I don't have anything to say that I believe would add anything to what other people uh, have done before. So my repertoire has shrunk uh, and now literally is focused on 18th century music. Uh, I would say uh, mid to late Baroque, uh, going up to uh, late classical, early Romantic. I'm getting there slowly. I'm doing uh, more and more bits of Romantic music. But for me, I have. it's very important that I approach it from behind. That is, I approach it from the earlier music. And so when I do Schubert or Mendelssohn, I'm interested uh, and uh, a lot in in what these composers have have you know um, borrowed from earlier music mm. and um and how music evolved and then they open doors to new worlds uh, but for me it's very important to to do it the which is a very hip thing uh <laughs> like yeah. to approach it from behind yeah. rather than 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 uh, than start from the traditions 
the, the, the so-called traditions that have been associated. I'm working right now, for instance, on Schubert 9, which I will be doing uh, in February with... Um, uh, with uh, Orchestra of Saint Luke's, which my which is my yes, your new York. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Sure we'll get we'll get there in that talk, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, and I, I'm always amazed when I look at that piece because the the the, the tempo connection between the introduction and the uh, the quick section of the first movement, the Allegro, is so obvious. Mm. it's the same tempo yeah. and that's how these people work and in the romantic tradition it's the intro is much slower and then you have to do this long accelerando in like the last 20 bars to get eventually to the tempo and it's everybody say oh that transition is so difficult and of course it's so difficult because it's completely <laughs> if you, unnatural yeah. if you're starting happen. from the, yeah if you're starting from the it, back of the pack you to exactly get front, it's it's a massive accelerando Ex yeah exactly 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 and it doesn't make any musical sense mm. it's completely absurd but for all sorts of reasons, this is how people got to do that piece, and so that's the kind of stuff that I'm, that that, that, that I'm trying to get rid of when I when I look at the music. So I'm getting slowly into Schubert. I'll do uh, Brahms Requiem uh, two seasons from now. I've done it when I was a much younger conductor, but it's a piece that I absolutely love because uh, if you come from the world of Bach and Handel and Schütz, then you find your home in Brahms Requiem. Uh, mm. It's it mm. where because it's so clear. The connection is so clear. So for me, I has to I have to understand and feel that connection in order to to feel that I have something to bring to the table that is mine, that is my own voice. Otherwise, I'm useless. Mm. Mm. Well, you just mentioned uh, music director of Orchestra of St. Luke's uh, since 2018, and talking about you know you're shrinking the repertoire but it sounds like you're revisiting old pieces or, or or you're pushing the boundaries up to Schubert and whatever else um does that mean that you are looking for guest conductors to come in and fill in the gaps and so that you concentrate well, on what you you do or how do you how you, do you see it working or how has it no. how has it been working yeah well uh, August of St Luke's is a very special animal hmm. uh, it's not a symphony orchestra in the traditional sense uh, it's self-governed. So I'm not music director, I'm principal conductor. Ah. Uh, which means that I'm in charge only of a certain number of concerts during the year. Yeah. Basically, I'm in charge of what I would call the hip folio, mm. portfolio. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, which, and, and the the, um, the the most important moments in during the year for the orchestra is our residency at Carnegie Hall. We have yeah. three concerts a year presented by Carnegie Hall on the main stage. And basically my job is to uh, to build that that season and uh, and clearly uh, I was picked for that job because of what I do and that mm. is to uh, perform 18th early 19th century music um, in a hip fashion in a mm. historically informed practice. Um, approach uh, it, it, but it doesn't prevent me from doing other things. And actually, we started a very successful Bach festival in June, which is on a smaller scale. It happens in, in the smaller hall at Carnegie and Zankel Hall, and uh, we have uh, sometimes appearances in the festivals and things like that. And we have projects for the future that are very, very interesting. What I like about this organization, among many, many things, is it's in. Incredibly, uh, incredible flexibility and the fact that there's a lot of room to actually create new things. Uh, my job is to be the dreamer 
and I work with a team of people who, uh, when they feel that there's a way to make these dreams happen, they will find the way to mm. do it. Mm. Uh, so I feel myself absolutely blessed to be working with uh, the team led by Jim Rowe, the uh, the CEO there, and um, and of course for the musicians there, it's a it's a very different experience because they have ownership. Mm. Uh, when I say it's self-governed, it means that there's a body of musicians, uh, many veterans from from the group that have been with the group in certain cases for for really a very long time, and they are the um, the owners mm. of the mm. of the institution. So I'm I'm just there to serve the institution and help these musicians to uh, to carry the organization into you know new steps new eras uh of its uh of its life but uh it's about institution building mm. but of course it's not something that i founded it's just something that i inherit for a short period of time uh, and th which is basically what we conductors uh are doing yes so there's a huge yeah there's a huge difference as you know between being a guest conductor who shows up for five six days and has to basically do the very best that can be done in a very short period of time and building a rapport over a very long period of time with an institution. And within that category, there's a huge difference between founding an institution, which I have done uh, two times actually with the choir and the, or and the orchestra, uh, as opposed to just inheriting the baton from someone and just passing it over to the next one. Mm. So these are just different levels of involvement. And by nature, I'm interested um, first and foremost in, and foremost in institution building. Mm. Uh, what I like is to be to, to you know plant roots and and I think it's it's probably related to the fact that my approach to music making i would say is very european has been influenced by european conductors the model i have for le violon which i found in quebec city and the choir these are very european models in terms of playing but we are in north america uh where uh you need to work a bit harder to plant deep roots uh, very true yeah it also offers a lot more opportunities than one could get in uh in the uk i mean starting a new group in the uk is a lot of work and is financially extremely difficult when i started living in quebec city uh quebec city is a capital city it's the capital city of the province of quebec and there was no chamber orchestra in town yeah. so we got support from the government from the second year on uh if i would like to start a new group now i wouldn't get that no. But back then, when I founded it in '84, there was room for that. So yes, it's 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 much uh, much it's much more work to you know be connected with the the, the roots of this music in this part of the world. But there's it's it's the world is also wide open. You know, mm -hmm. you can you can create things, and and that's that's what I've been doing all my life, like build trying to build institutions. I'm going to stick with your repertoire, and it's the eleventh question, Bernard, which uh, every conductor has had to answer. It's about score study, and should you be revisiting an old friend like the Brahms Requiem, as you said, is coming up, 
uh, or maybe a Schubert symphony you've never conducted before. How do you go about marking your score, learning your score? First of all, do, you know, I'm assuming, as you said, you wish you'd learned the piano as a child. You don't use a piano that often. You use your inner ear. But do you start big and go small? Do you start at the first page and go to the end? And are you a scribbler inner of things? I know I am. Everybody in the podcast knows I'm a red, blue and black and write all sorts of historical notes, markings to myself, all sorts of things in my score. Or do you like to keep it, as many others conductors do, virginally clean and not nothing in your score? How do you go about it? I would say that uh, the first time, like when I work on a new piece, I'm a scribbler, definitely. Mm. And uh, I do it the very old-fashioned way that I start from the bigger picture going into the details. Mm. So I start with analysis. And, and when I do that, I do write all of my analysis marks in the score. Uh, because for me, it's just, I need to, my mind need needs to understand the architecture and the structure of something in, in order to learn it in detail. And then from there on, I dig in. But when I uh, buy a new score or I change edition of a piece that I've learned before, mm. then then I won't be scribbling much. And actually, as and I think most of my colleagues are like that, that the older you grow, the less you need, uh, you, you feel the need to write a lot of stuff because it, it has to be absorbed. It has to be in you. So, uh, but that's very traditional. The, the, the only thing, and 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 I, I will admit to that sin, is that I have, as part of my learning of a piece, I have absolutely no problem at some point listening and working with recordings. Oh, I don't think it's a it, sin. I think many conductors yeah. have agreed with yeah. you. Um, exactly. Really, it's, yeah. uh, it's not, um, because the problem with me is that because I'm not a keyboard player, I just cannot sit in front of the score and reduce it and play it by myself. So yes, inner ear, but uh, inner ear is one thing. Yeah. Uh, the sound of an orchestra is another one, and at some point, uh, or a choir or a soloist, whatever, uh, at some point you need to hear the real thing. And I think I have developed over the years an extremely critical approach to uh, to listening to recordings of pieces that I prepare. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my joys is to look for wrong notes for <laughs> things that are just not written in the score. So I I permanently. Uh, uh, put what I hear against what uh, about the blueprint of the piece in my mind, just uh, always trying to compare it. And I'll always listen to many different ones so mm -hmm. that, that, you know, I don't, it's not, I'm not stick to one thing, but I, I, I have no problem um, admitting to the fact that I do listen to recordings when I prepare music. Uh, often what I will do is that if I'm learning a new piece, I will first listen to a couple of versions and then I put the recordings aside, and then I start from the score. Uh, it 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 just accelerates the process of of creating a um, uh, again a blueprint of the piece in your mind. Uh, but the, it doesn't, of course, it doesn't prevent you from the necessity of um, literally going into all of the details and mm. make making sure that you hear hear. I mean, in in your head, what's written there. Are you a young conductor, thirsty for knowledge, and wanting to discover more about the world of conducting? Then my Patreon page is there for you. I'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and an ex-orchestral player. And I offer you the chance to ask me any question, any time of the day. You will gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles, and much, much more. 
If you pay for the whole year, then you will gain a 10% discount, and if you are a student, contact me directly and there will be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, and from just £5 a month, you gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. The details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Bernard Labadie. Bernard, it is time for the 10 questions. Uh, I oh wouldn't know what that would be. I know, oh I wouldn't know God. how to say that in French. Um, uh, les 10 les questions. <laughs> and the first two are lumped into one, which is what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Uh, one of the sounds I love the most is the sound of bells. Um, I live in a rather old part of Quebec City. I mean, old by North American standards. Uh, and there's a lovely little church uh, just uh, around the corner. And uh, the sound of the bells, first of all, it's because no, not all churches have no. good sounding bells. But it's a perfect triad here. It sounds really, uh, it's very beautiful, very clear, very pristine. And depending on where you are in the area, if you're walking, uh, you don't hear the harmonics are different, of course. So it's, it never mm. sounds exactly the same. And across the, because I live by the river in Quebec City, and across the river, there's a church which was built uh, at around the same time. And I am absolutely convinced, although I did, didn't do any research on it, that the bells from that church uh, were built by the same company the same bell makers and that they were installed in that church probably around the same time because it's the exact same triad. And wow. so there are, there are days, uh, especially Sundays, uh, when if there's an 11 a.m. mass in both churches, but they're not the, the, uh, their timeline is not absolutely lined up. So you will hear one church uh, sounding the three bells and then another one will respond and yeah. one way or the other. And uh, and it's not it's not even it's not a religious thing or anything. It's just it's it's the sound that I find beautiful and uplifting. And also the fact that when I'm home, this is a sound that uh, happens every day at, at you know, fixed moments. So it's kind of a it's kind of a musical fixture in, in time mm. that I find uh, reassuring it, for me, even when I'm on the road away from home. I hear bells and I think of home. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I see myself at home, and and my home is something very uh, important uh, because I I live literally in my roots. I I, I live just a few weeks, a, a few streets. I'm sorry, away from where I was born, and uh, the the building next door uh, was the old uh, village school in the early 20th century. Uh, late 19th century, actually, I have a picture on my wall of my grandfather, who was in uh, in uh, third grade, mm. on the first row, and on the second row, there's my grandmother, who was in fourth grade. Oh wow! And they are standing in front of the building, and you can absolutely recognize the building from the picture. And that's a picture from the class of 1898. Yeah. So wow. uh, I, I, I really have the impression that I'm I'm living where I'm I'm supposed to live. Like this is where I belong. So all of that that sonic world, the uh, of of bells for me is related to that actually. 
and belonging to another world, the opposite, a sound that you hate. Anything coming out of a loudspeaker in a mall or in an elevator. Muzak. The, yeah, it, yeah, the, the Muzak, yeah. Uh, nothing, ah. there's nothing I hate more than that. That's why I don't, I try not to go to malls, uh, especially at Christmas time, because I'm so fond of Christmas uh, and of Christmas music. And for me, it's just murder. Question three is, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would uh, probably go to the nearest vineyard. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> because oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a wine lover. Uh, yeah. this is, wine is a very uh, important part of my life. I'm talking here about uh, quality uh, rather than quantity. Mm. Although on, on a few days, uh, there's a few days. Quality and quantity can exist, uh, uh, coexist. <laughs> exactly. But no, I've been fascinated with the wine, with the, the, uh, the wine world uh, since I was a teenager because I was helping... A neighbor across the street from my mom was making his own wine made from blueberries and all sorts of stuff. And uh, the stuff was probably undrinkable. Uh, the thing is that I didn't drink it, but I was helping him. So the smell of yeast, of fermentation, the, 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 the everything related to making wine and bottling it, it kind of uh, triggered something when I was a teenager, uh, although I was not drinking a lot. Uh so that when I was in my early 20s, I started reading a lot about wine and starting buying, I started buying, uh, collecting would be a big word, but mm. buying good bottles. Um, actually, I remember as a student coming out of Laval University, I got a scholarship to study Gregorian chant in Paris. Uh, and it was the absolute perfect scholarship. It was <laughs> two weeks a year. One in uh, late November, early December, one in March, two weeks a year for three years in a row in Paris. Uh, you know, what a, expense, what a body blow that is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, near the hotel where I was staying, there was a there was a wine shop and the man running it was the absolute quintessential uh wine man from from uh, from a cellar in, in France, so a big round face, rosy. Uh, rosy cheeks uh, mm. with a, 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 a bearded collar uh, around his head and a huge uh, leather uh, apron, apron, yeah. apron, apron, a apron, apron, yeah, apron. yeah. and um, and for some reason, uh, well, I would go there. There would be I mean, on a Tuesday morning. There would be nobody in the store, so I would chat with him, and I think he fell in love with my Quebecer accent. Hmm. And uh, and he felt that I was absolutely uh, with no pun intended thirsty for for learning yeah. uh, about yeah. uh, about wine, and he would talk to me about all sorts of wines that he had, and the first bottles that I bought and treasured and 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 drank back at home, you know, almost like it would be mass. Hmm. Uh, our bottles that I bought at that store, and um, so. Over the years, I, I I got the opportunity to start a collection, uh, and and as a conductor, I've been traveling a lot in uh, in towns or areas of the world where wine is made. So I would, for instance, I would for years I was a guest at San Francisco Symphony, uh, many years in a row, and San Francisco Symphony has this very weird schedule where you have a first rehearsal on a Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. And then you're off until Tuesday or sometimes Wednesday morning. 
because the the two weeks overlap. The they start the first week on the Saturday morning, and on the Saturday evening on the same day the previous week the, ends. Yeah, the previous week's concert. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So in anywhere in the world that would be a bummer, but in uh, San Francisco it just gave me time to rent a car and drive up uh, to go to wine country. Yeah, and yeah. And, and, and explore. So and of course in Europe, in France, in Germany, almost everywhere. I go, I try to arrange things. My, I mean, I remember when I was offered my first and actually only gig in New Zealand and I was offered the job and, and, and normally when I'm offered a job, I'm very mindful of what, what is the program? How many rehearsals? Uh, do they know what I do for a living <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of, you know, they know that the hip guy is coming in town. Yeah. So are they, are they, usually they are, but sometimes they're not. So usually I ask all of those questions. And I'm very careful be before saying yes to a gig. And when I got an offer with the, uh, Auckland Philharmonia I didn't ask any questions I said yes I'm going <laughs> yeah. because one of my favorite wineries in the world is uh Kumu River and it's about 25 minutes drive from from uh Auckland downtown and yeah. uh, as fate happens as fate would have it the one of the, the people working in the uh, in the office at the orchestra uh, new people in the so I got a driver to go there and I, I spent like three hours I think I, I drank I, I tasted uh, absolutely everything they produced fabulous memories concert was okay but the the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the wine visit was yeah. was was the, the 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 main purpose so and for me it's it's not just about the hedonistic no no no, no part of it no, no. Uh, also for me drinking wine is like traveling in a glass because mm. I'm always interested. Where does the wine come from? Who are the people who make it? How do they make it? Is is it connected to traditions? Is that innovation? Is it it wine? If you're interested in wine, it tells you so much about humanity. Mm. Uh, that for mm. me, it's 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 a way of of uh, traveling without having necessarily to travel, and it does taste good usually too. Question four is: Who would be your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Um, Charles McCarris. Yes, brilliant um, choice. Because because of the, the inquisitive mind in everything he was doing. Mm. Uh, one of the first hip conductors who was doing a lot of other stuff. But uh, I think the, I mean, basically he did a lot for Czech music. That is, that is yeah. uh, well known. But he also did a lot really for uh, 18... Century repertoire and 19th century, including uh, romantic music, which mm. he, he was one of the first to clean up and to uh, make relevant, as far as I'm concerned. So I've I've always been an admirer. I never had the the pleasure of meeting him. Apparently, everybody who's met him has been struck. <laughs> in I'm, some ways I met because, him. Yeah, yeah I met him on a couple of occasions. Yeah, quite, quite of character, yeah. but uh, have a great uh, um, admiration and respect for uh, how he approach music making well one wonders whether Janacek or as he would say Janacek uh, would be yeah. anything like as famous today as he as he, he is now if it wasn't for Macaris's work on on his music and Absolutely. championing it and the other thing is I, I think the last time I played for him because I'm not sure you know but I played in the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra for 22 years before I I didn't know I, that. before I joined or went to the dark side um exactly I think the last time I played for him, we did Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, and he insisted that the bass line was doubled throughout on a contrabassoon because he discovered that in the 
world premiere or the, one of the early performances that Beethoven conducted, that there was a contrabassoon there. I have to say, I found it very, very, very interesting. But yeah, you're right. He was always inquisitive. Or always, uh, I enjoyed playing for him um, very much. Uh, and, and he was what I like about these people. And we're about to talk about John Edel Gardner again. Mm. Uh, uh, what I like about these people is that they take risks. Yes. And sometimes the risks don't pay off. Mm. Uh, but the they they do not have a safe approach. Mm to uh, music making while having to perform at a very very high level which mm. is so that's a risky life and, and uh, they uh, I, I have the utmost respect for people who are willing to do that i am assuming therefore that your answer to question five is john elliot gardner or sir john elliot gardner um he's, for he's, he, yeah. the reasons you gave but also there's that personal connection of course yeah exactly personal connection and 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 uh, i mean i'm still interested in everything he does uh i'm not saying that i like everything that i love everything uh that's impossible mm. but uh again he, he brings i mean he's a maverick he's always trying stuff i remember uh, hearing live his cycle of schumann symphonies on period instruments uh mm. at, at lincoln center and uh it was um it was a revelation I'm not saying that that's my favorite version or anything, but no. for once, that answered the question about Truman symphonies uh, and their orchestration, mm. uh, which has for years uh, been considered awkward and 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 silly and not effective. And you realize that when you hear it on period instruments, ninety uh, percent of these problems disappear. Mm, mm, and there's a lot to learn there's a lot to learn in that so when you do that music as a you know modern conductor with modern instruments um then it it feeds you it feeds your approach it gives you keys to how to resolve these problems what is the hardest work you've ever conducted because of the repertoire that i do uh there are not there are no you know, huge technical challenges. I do mostly 18th and 19th century. So I, I never have to memorize, you know, two, four, three, eight, seven, eight, five, eight, three, eight, two, eight, four, eight. That never happens to me. Uh, so it's it's not uh, technically, it's, I would say it's emotionally. Yeah. And uh, it's definitely sent Matthew passion, mm. which is the absolute uh, peak uh, in uh, Western uh, repertoire. And it's a piece that I've um, adored, revered, studied uh, so many times. I mean, I spent so much time with the score and listening to recording when I was uh, a teenager. And uh, it's not a piece that I get to conduct enough simply mm. because it's not done often, obviously, because it requires three choirs and two orchestras and usually a minimum of six soloists. Uh, and every time I do it, it's a journey that I find um, absolutely um, it's nourishing, it's fulfilling, but it's I always come out completely drained. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. emotionally when we get to that final chorus, uh, it just it kills me every time. Uh, I, I I just find it difficult because it's this is music that resonates so much with me uh and and there are pieces that are very much associated with me i've done messiah i think like 200 times hmm. uh wow. and i do it from memory and 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 but it's it's not the same kind of relationship saint matthew is something uh sacred in my mind and every time i enter that temple i am in awe 
mm. and I it's it's um, emotionally much more demanding to deal with uh, something that you respect at the highest level uh, because you always have the feeling that you might not be up to the task. Every mm. time I do that piece, I ask myself a question, will I and will we be up to the task of, of bringing that, uh, of giving um, that masterpiece, the the tender and loving care and dedication that it deserves. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Uh, it's going to be a very down to earth answer. It's headphones. Noise canceling. Um, uh, I would noise imagine noise canceling yes, headphones. Yeah, yeah. But also good enough so that you can listen to music. When you're on the train, when you're waiting in the airport, when you're, uh, I have them on permanently, mm. and and yeah, and very often on planes, I'm not playing anything. I'm just canceling the the noise from from the engine. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, nothing romantic about that answer. I'm sorry, it's a very down to earth one. Sometimes we need to be down to earth. We can't yeah, all be absolutely. romantic all the time. <laughs> it's part of our lives. It is. <laughs> Number eight is what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Uh, I would like to work a lot more with uh, peered instruments, mm. actual peered instruments. Uh, when I founded my orchestra, Olivier Notoire, in Quebec City in 1984, my, I mean, my models were, you know, the 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 back then rather young English concert and mm. things like that. And I would, I wanted to build something similar to that, but uh, there were simply not enough people in Quebec City. Uh, playing peer instruments and and the level of people who were you know that was back in the days especially in America when most people who were playing the broke flute or the broke oboe or the broke violin uh, turned to that because they couldn't make a decent living on the modern instrument so that's kind of fair a, yeah 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 absolutely mm. so the level was not interesting and and I I was interested in in, in a very very high level so when we started Le Violon. The idea was to uh, gather young musicians. Most of them were just, you know, graduates from from the conservatory or the university, or were actually sometimes still even in school. And and to hire young musicians was still very very flexible. Mm. And then we can, I was about to say, we can teach them style, but actually we learn style together, literally. Because mm. uh, at at age twenty one, when I founded Le Violon. In my head, I knew what I wanted to the music to sound like, but I had no idea how to make it happen. And especially on modern instruments, which are not perfectly suited to what I had in mind, because I had been fed by all these recordings uh, using period instruments. So that led me to that led us and 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 me, of course, uh, at the same time, uh, to gain uh, expertise on how to make uh, 18th century music, 19th century music on modern instruments, uh, how to perform it and and being really informed as the eye and the hip. Yes, yes. Really yeah. informed about performance practice because I, I mean, I believe that in an ideal world, the, uh, the period instrument is the best exponent for any music because composers were writing for instruments. There's nothing I hate more uh, than people saying, "Ah, oh, if Mozart has known the, mo the the modern piano, he would have used it." Of course, he would have. Mm. But would the music have been the same? 
No, I don't well, think so. No, of course I don't think. No, no. no, exactly. So there's there's an, an an organic connection between the instrument and the music, which cannot be ignored. Mm. And for me, the Baroque violin is not an inferior version of the modern violin. Uh, 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 no, it's Baroque just different. Yeah. Exactly, the Baroque oboe is not an inferior instrument. It's a different instrument. And there are things that you can do on a on a period instrument which you cannot do on the modern instruments. Think of the the French, uh, the typical French Baroque um, ornament called flattement, where on, on a wooden instrument, you, uh, it's, imagine that you're trilling, so yeah, that you're, you're, you're just using your finger to block one hole, but mm. you don't block it completely. So you just lower the tone. It's like a, uh, it's like the lower half of the vibrato yeah, that yeah. you create yeah. with your fingers. Try that on a modern flute. Yeah, <laughs> it ain't happening. Yeah, indeed. yeah, it ain't yeah. happening at all. Yeah. So, so that's so. Anyways, back to your question. My uh, my goal was to eventually bring the violon to be uh, an orchestra performing on 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 period instruments. Uh, so we tried kind of a transition. We started with the bows. Yeah, we we convincing our people to try to use period bows on their modern instruments. And it was so successful that we got stuck there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because... it, it is it is such a massive difference. As a ex-violinist who taught the violin for 10 years at the Conservatory in Birmingham, I always used to try and make my students play at some point early on to play a Bach solo partita or sonata with a Baroque bow Absolutely. on their modern instrument because it meant that there were certain techniques they'd been put, taught before they came to me that were actually physically impossible to do with a Baroque bow. Exactly. And there are certain articulations you have to produce. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, you know, and, and then, and you, the, you know, then you can try yeah. it with a modern bow and say, well, now try and replicate what you've just done. Of course, exactly. the easiest thing would be to say, give them a Baroque violin and a Baroque bow and say, go on, learn it on that. But we don't all have that sort of money or, or the, those sort of resources. But it's the biggest thing. I mean, really, it is. Um, I would say that 75% uh, of what I would call the period sound on a string instrument comes from the bow. Yeah. How And, and how you use it. And I mean, for those young violinists, all the ones who have that, to discover that, no, the tip is not as strong as the frog, and it will never happen. <laughs> Don't try to make it yeah. sound even the way you learn on the modern uh, bow, because that's not how it works. Yeah. So, uh, but we never passed that stage because when we started that, we actually uh, did something that very few people were doing back then. We were performing Baroque music on modern instruments using period bows. And in, in the 80s, that was extremely rare. And actually... Mm. Starting in, because the orchestra became permanent in 92, we were the only permanent orchestra uh, in the world doing that. And in the early years when we were doing it, we were, you know, frowned upon and looked look, look down by uh, both the Baroque people who said, you're, you're just, you're bastards because you're not, you're not going <laughs> the whole, you know, the whole yeah. nine yards. You're just doing part of it. And the modern people would, would look at it the same way, like, why, why do you do that? It's just... Uh, and the irony is that what was considered like a compromise or, you know, bastard approach to uh, making this music has become very, very uh, trendy mm. uh, with time because the the uh, the border and the line between, you know, hip performance and traditional performance, that line has been blurred big time. Yeah, I mean, massively. the day that Simon Rattle programmed Ramos Le Boread with the Berlin Phil. There's a huge brick wall that fell down on, mm. on, on that day. Uh, and now 
uh, all musicians, uh, all conductors are interested in that, and they know that they have to know something about it. Yes, um, very so, true. So because of that, because we became very successful, we never we never went through the whole transition. So Le Violon, uh, I see the experience of Le Violon as something absolutely um, seminal, but also typical of the milieu in which this experience was was uh, was led. That is um, the northern part of North America, uh, and you know we we toured a lot in the states. And quite frankly, when you're touring the American Midwest in January, and on one night you're performing in a neo-Gothic church with seventy percent humidity, and the following day you were in a high school auditorium with twenty-five percent humidity you're very happy not to have gut strings. Absolutely. Yeah. The minute you started yeah. talking about humidity, I thought gut yeah. strings, gut strings. Also, exactly. calf head timps and things like that. Exactly, and, exactly. Know, you, the, the, the last yeah. thing you want. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Le Violon is a North American animal yeah. uh, that was built for, for, for uh, because Quebec City is a small market. The orchestra cannot, uh, it's, it's a 34-week contract for the orchestra, which is amazing. Uh, but, I mean, at least a third and ideally half of these weeks should happen outside of Quebec City. So anyways, anyways, all of this to say that because of that, I never got to really work a lot with period instruments. And because my career blossomed mostly in North America before I started being known in Europe and the UK, that I, I get only rare opportunities to work with period instruments. And I cherish every one of them. Uh, I especially cherish uh, my uh, my very um, uh, irregular, uh, but but still happening uh, relationship with the English concert. Mm. Um, like three years ago, I did um, I did uh, Gluck's Orfeo there uh, at the Edinburgh Festival with the English concert. Last summer, I was supposed to do my first Handel Saul. Uh, with them, and I had to cancel it because of uh, because of a health situation, which has been an important part of my story in my life. And since 2014, uh, I was in 2014. I was, I would say, at at the height of a certain kind of life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I was traveling a lot. I was, and, and in May of late April, May of 2014, I was. You know, I had a week with Livio Non followed with a week with Chicago Symphony, followed with a recording with the uh, uh, SVR and Freiburg, followed by a week with uh, Swedish Radio in Stockholm, followed by a week with the Philharmonique de Radio France in Paris. That was my life back then. Yeah. And I was enjoying it. I was, you know, I was at, at, I was the king of the world. Yeah. Thank you, Kate Winslet. And, um, <laughs> and uh, smack in the middle of it, I was diagnosed with cancer. Oh uh, God! and a, a really nasty one, mm. which upended my life for two years. Um, and actually, uh, it was such a an aggressive cancer. Mm. It was a, a T cell lymphoma with aggravated hemo hemophagocytosis syndrome. That so you can you can look it up. In 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 in. Uh, I'll memory. Google it. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's uh, that that was a very bad combo. And I, quite frankly, I was not supposed to survive. And uh, the odds were very, very low. And I, I, I got the right lottery ticket. So I well, was, I was hospitalized for a month in Germany because I was diagnosed in Freiburg. Then, 
traveled back to Canada, then was treated, uh, spent six months in the hospital. I was in a coma for a month. Uh, after the coma, I had to relearn how to walk, how to sit by the bed, how to go to the bathroom. Wow. Um, a, a major, major shock, which has changed my life in a dramatic way. Mm. And um, with a lot of bad sides, of course, but also good sides. Mm. Uh, because when when you l go through such a transformational process, um, if you have to go down that dark hole where you know that you might you you know you're on a you're on a table uh, you're on a um, the operation room uh, you know that they're about to um to uh, make you to, to, i'm sorry my english of that today um it's fine i was about to put you to sleep but that's <laughs> english, so i'm yeah, yeah. And you know that you might not wake up, literally, mm. you're aware of that. So, and I had lots of, of uh, close calls uh, and, and, and close encounters with death over that, that long period of time. So if you have to go down that dark well, if you get the privilege to come out of it, uh, there are things that you can bring back mm. from that that very dark well and and uh, and for me it's been of course uh, a certain urgency a feeling of urgency the fact that time is slipping through your fingers all the time but also an, an a, a weird kind of freedom the fact that uh i was 51 i was ready to go when it happened i mean ready to go meaning that if i had gone at age 51 um I, people could have said he lived a full life yeah 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 uh, because yeah. because it created found an orchestra uh, a choir uh, we had there we have a brilliant concert hall that belongs to Quebec City through the town but it's been rebuilt for us been redone for us so could have I could have said you know I had a full life mm. and uh, and I was ready to go because obviously I thought I would go and then mm. uh in November of 2014, I, I knocked at St. Peter's doors and then the office was closed hmm. for renovation <laughs> and I had to come back. And so when you, you get to do that, I mean, basically, I have the feeling that I'm living on a gigantic credit card. Well, it's know. a free hit. You're, you're, you're exactly. on a free hit. Yeah. And yeah. I never get the account of the mail. You know, it, yeah. It, yeah. I lost my address. And when people ask me, how old are you? I say, I just turned eight. Because mm. I got a complete reboot because of the cancer I had. I, I had a, uh, a stem cell transplant. Uh, the stem cells came from my sister. She mm. saved my life. Um, my, I changed blood type just to tell you what kind of transformation this is. Wow. So a complete total reboot. So after that, it's a rebirth. It's like I was born on October 22nd, 2014. That's my mm. new... Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll turn 60 next year. And people tell me, oh, what does it mean to turn 60? I said... I don't give a damn yeah. because, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's not it's the timeline is different and my my body came out of that experience um half broken uh i had to work very hard to rebuild it i never managed to rebuild it the way it was before there are things that there are simple things in life like you know kneeling is mm. is incredibly difficult because i lost the core muscles that allow me to do it and they cannot be rebuilt mm. Mm. uh and and i keep living i mean cancer the kind of the cancer i had is a gift that never stops giving so like this year 
the gift from actually two years ago, which is still ongoing, is uh, that I, I I need hip replacements, mm -hmm. uh, both hips, because because I took so much um, cortisone that uh, my bones are literally disintegrating the ones uh, around the hip. So because of that, I had to cancel six months of work. When I had cancer, I canceled two weeks, two years, or actually two years and a half of work, uh, plus the pandemic. I mean, just yeah. together. It's, it's, been it's a, compounding. Yeah, It's been a very rough path since 2014, but it also makes everything that I do more precious. Uh, I know it might be the last one mm. uh, because I was not expecting that hit when I hit the wall. And so I know it exists. Uh, death might come back at any time. And when well, it comes, I will recognize it because I've, I've, I I looked it in the eyes. And it's, it it's an amazing life. story and an inspirational story. Um, and I think your attitude is so right. Um, it's a story I will definitely be making sure that my eldest daughter listens to because that's something she's very much interested in, having got a master's in a very similar topic um, to do with stem cells and oncology. So I will be making she, sure she listens to you. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't see that coming uh, because, you know, I, as the listeners know, I lo I'm looking at you on Zoom and you, you look a picture of health. Uh, and, you know, yeah, smart, you. smiley, smiley chatty person. Part. You know, <laughs> you know I, you, you yeah, see I can only see. the upper part. <laughs> yeah. No, but seriously, yeah. my my body is, uh, I'll turn 60 next year, my body is at least 75. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I don't expect to live, my mother died two years ago at age 100. Uh, wow, but wow. I really don't expect to follow in her footsteps because because of what happened to me, and it's fine. I'm okay mm. with that. Enjoy I'm, your I'm... free hit, whilst yeah, yeah, whilst, yeah exactly. Yeah, and yeah. and and then you stop looking at things like um, everything is a stepping stone to something else, <laughs> yeah, to something bigger, yeah. to bigger success. To you stop looking at life like this. You just appreciate every step in your life, everything that happens. I mean, I remember when I came home after being hospitalized for six months, I was just amazed of how good the orange juice was in the morning because the one they serve you in hospital is it tastes like shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, the, I mean, things like that. And, and I mean, for the long period of time when I was, you know, rebuilding my strength, I live in this magical place with a, a, a almost 180 degree view on the St. Lawrence River. Mm. And it it's been feeding me it's been keeping me alive uh during all that time and every project that i knew now for me is special mm. because it, it hopefully it won't be the last one but it could be the last one it could be. Yeah. It, you have to be you have to be ready uh for that all the time and when you've lived through that yeah there's so many things that were annoying you including elevator music uh, <laughs> earlier in your life that then suddenly yeah. don't matter. You know, it's yeah. just yeah. like, like no. and I literally, I have about 50 or 60% of the physical energy that I had before cancer. So I have to use it wisely. Mm. And I, I, I cannot hop from one job to the other, the way I used to. I'm, I'm sometimes I'm doing it, but I need big chunks of, of resting time after that. I'm going to move on to question number nine. And I've got that, now. You got, got, you, you got a long answer to number eight. Eh? Yeah, I did get a long answer to number eight, but I'm going to link in the answer to number eight and the answer to number three as being two possible areas that you may have been interested in pursuing as a profession instead of being a conductor. 
if you you've had got, you've you've got your answer oh so, so what was it what would it have been would it have been um a maker of wine or or specializing in oncology <laughs> definitely not oncology <laughs> uh but wine related definitely yeah, yeah. Uh, i don't know what it could have been because i'm 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 a wine lover but i'm not i'm definitely not uh, uh, an expert taster yeah uh i would i would describe myself as an enlightened amateur Mm. So what what would have been my place? I just don't know. But it would most likely have been something related to that because yeah. it's it's my second passion in life, literally. And and on some days it's the first. <laughs> <laughs> so questions three and nine both included wine, and I know that you enjoy <laughs> wine now very much. So I'm looking forward to knowing what your choice of final meal and especially the drink might be. If the world were to end tonight, of course, I must bring that in just in case he wanted to go all religious on me. But I don't think you're going to. No, I'm not going to. Yeah. It, it, it's definitely not just, you know, regular wine and bread. No, it's it's, it's more than that. Uh, but it wouldn't be a Michelin star. I mean, I, I've I've enjoyed a few, but I'm not I'm not someone who just goes to one Michelin star restaurant yeah. to another. Uh, I, I like simple food. Uh, I like Italian food because you know people say that if you are, you have more than three ingredients, you have too many ingredients mm. in, in Italian. So it, it's hard for me to pinpoint an exact meal, but it would be something like uh, a really nice osobuco with uh, risotto and a, 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 a glass of an exceptional Chianti or uh, um yeah, a great a great wine from Tuscany, mm. but it's uh, so. I mean, now when I open that part of my mind, is it, no, maybe not a Chianti. Maybe I would want an, a great uh, wine from the Northern Rhone Valley, uh, mm. even though it's not supposed to go with Osobuco. So it's uh, yeah, but something simple. Yeah, uh, simple uh, and and uh, not not that it's it doesn't taste great, but that it's it doesn't need food does not need to be uh, rethought all the time. Sometimes just the natural taste of things, a couple of them that you put them, that you put together magically, uh, sometimes this is the best result. And actually, I think that the best wines uh, are made in the same way. When you leave, you take care of the land, you treat it with respect, and then you leave it to it to give you the right ingredients and you make the wine happen as simply as possible. Um, so you don't, you don't need to fuss around with it too much. You just make it simply. And for me, that's, that's the key to um, the, the very last meal, which I hope I will have as late as possible. <laughs> uh, well the listeners will know i do love a cheesy link and you mentioned the right ingredients and i think when we get two people who both conduct who enjoy food and drink um to get chatting uh, they're the right ingredients and i think i've had a wonderful uh hour or so nearly two hours chatting with you bernard and i hope in the future our paths can cross and you can teach me a little bit more about wine and we can sit down and carry on chatting thank you very much it's been a, uh, a privilege talking to you, Michael. Take care. Bye-bye. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. 
Next time, I chat with a Dutch conductor who went through the famous German Kapellmeister system, working at three different opera houses, including 10 years as general music director in Koblenz. Since 2018, he's been the principal guest conductor of the WDR Funkhouse Orchestra in Cologne. But until then, bye-bye.